0: You have the spike-causing inflammation, the spike-causing clotting, and you have the
1: spike-causing all of this autoimmune disease. Today I sit down with Dr. Paul Merrick, the most highly published critical care physician in the world who is still actively practicing, and co-founder of the FLCCC Alliance. If we had
0: adopted, as a number of countries have done, early, widespread, early treatment, we could have controlled and ended this pandemic in the middle of 2020.
1: We discussed Dr. Merrick's views on the corruption of medicine, from the suppression of off-label drugs, to the manipulation of safety data, to the gaslighting of the vaccine injured. I used to think that what you read in the medical journals was the truth. We know now that that's completely false. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Jekielek. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our podcast, American Hartford Gold. As you all know, inflation is getting worse. The Fed raised rates for the fifth time this year, and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is telling Americans to brace themselves for potentially more pain ahead. But there is one way to hedge against inflation. American Hartford Gold makes it simple and easy to diversify your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. American Hartford Gold is one of the highest-rated firms in the country, with an a rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $2,500 of free silver and a free safe on qualifying orders. Call 855-862-3377, that's 855-862-3377, or text American to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text American to
0: 65532.
1: Dr. Paul Merrick, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you, Jan. It's it's an honor and a pleasure to be here today. Well, it's an honor and a pleasure to sit down with you. Um, you were one of the very earliest people who were doing early treatment of COVID. I mean, this is back in March of 2020, in, when you were leading the ICU at the hospital in Norfolk, Virginia. Um, why don't you tell me what was happening at that time? Yeah, so obviously,
0: you know, I was in Norfolk. Um, New York's not far away. This was March, and we knew that COVID had come to the U.S. and had come to the Eastern Shore and that we were going to get COVID. And at that time, if you remember, in New York, the standard current of care was really no care. The NIH and the WHO said there was no specific treatment. It was supportive care. And um, if you couldn't breathe, you were intubated, put on a ventilator, and you died. And That's completely and utterly preposterous. It just goes against the basic foundation of medicine, that you would have a disease which had a high fatality rate, and you wouldn't try something, something, just to treat these patients. And we thought this is extremely bizarre. What the NIH was saying at that time is there's no treatment. If you get it, just stay at home and see what happens. And if you go blue and you can't breathe, go to the hospital. I mean, this, is, this was absurd. So what we did is, you know, it was myself first and then a number of colleagues, Dr. Corey, Dr. Verone, Dr. Maduro, we said, you know what, let's come together with a treatment protocol based on our understanding of the disease. So this wasn't random. It was basically based on our understanding of the disease at that time and the clinical observations. And what we figured out Well, there were two major components of of COVID pneumonia because this, you know, COVID attacked the lung and these people died of lung failure and the two components were inflammation, patients were developing profound pulmonary inflammation, the second is they were developing clotting and we know that then and we absolutely know it now. So it it wasn't rocket science. So what we decided, we needed a drug for the inflammation and the most potent anti-inflammatory drug we have is corticosteroids. And the best corticosteroid for the lung is methylprednisolone. So um, we added methylprednisolone and heparin, which really formed the foundation of our protocol. And we developed what was called the Math Plus Protocol for the treatment of the hospitalized patient and um, people thought this made sense and and adopted it around the world Uh, at that time we were heavily criticized you know for firstly using corticosteroids and then heparin people said you can't do it it's a viral disease you're going to kill people Um, they were outraged Um, but you know we saw it worked you know we were at the bedside you know there's nothing like being a doctor at the bedside seeing what happens and then of course you know, six months later, the recovery trial came around and showed, believe it or not, corticosteroids save lives. So unfortunately, in that study, they used the wrong steroid in the wrong dose. But it, 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 steroids are so potent that it actually was, was able to reduce mortality. So, you know, we were vindicated. It's absurd that the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine publicly said, you know, in response to this, that we got lucky. It wasn't luck it was we understood the disease we were bedside clinicians who were observing what was happening and we used common sense and basic science to treat these people and then obviously we know that that the spike protein activates clotting causes profound activation of clotting and that's why we added an anticoagulant heparin and it took maybe in a year before again there were really good studies proving that heparin saved lives. And so, you know, looking at my data, and people can argue about the data which my hospital has done, but, you know, in my hands, and even using conservative data, our hospital mortality was around 10%. You know, it was probably a little bit lower. Dr. Varone, who had complete control of his hospital in Houston at that time, his mortality was about 6%. The hospital mortality, and we know this because we've published data on it around the world, was around 20%, sometimes up to 30%. So, you know, uh, conservatively, we have the risk of people dying, and so that's how we got 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 involved in this. Um, you know, what was frustrating was that we were the enormous pushback we got, and why people couldn't see what was happening this was so obvious you didn't need to be a rocket scientist or a nobel laureate to actually see what's going on this is basic clinical medicine you have a problem we have a solution just treat the people you know stop the nonsense and i mean even to this day we're being attacked even though you know the, the data is overwhelming that this that our protocol saves lives And you know, ours wasn't the only one. There are similar protocols
1: across the world using very similar approaches which have shown the same thing. So before we continue, why don't you tell me how you came to be running uh, the ICU in Norfolk, at the hospital in Norfolk, and your background.
0: Yes, so I'm a critical care doctor or intensivist. Um, I trained in South Africa. I did a critical care fellowship in London, Ontario. And basically, I've been in an academic setting in various teaching hospitals, you know, since the mid-1990s. And, um, you know, my interest is obviously ICU. One of my particular interests was sepsis, which is one of the biggest killers on this planet. Uh, Maybe 40 million people die every year of sepsis. And so there were very obvious overlaps between sepsis which is a profound inflammatory disease and in COVID. So that's maybe how we got onto our protocol because we adapted, we
1: adapted our sepsis protocol to COVID. And well, and tell me a little more because I, I think what you're describing to me is a little bit understated. You were very well known already before, uh, before COVID hit.
0: Yeah, so I think for two reasons. One is I challenge the status quo. That's just what I've been, the way I was taught, is that not to believe everything you've told you know, science is about challenging the status quo. You know, pushing the bar forward. You know, asking sometimes inconvenient questions. And so, you know, many of the um, procedures and protocols which
1: we followed were completely bogus. And and this is before COVID. This is looking at various protocols on, in, in different realms of science, yeah. This uh, is this medicine. is all this is all
0: yeah. pre-COVID. I mean, so one probably one of the most interesting is that. there's a a thing called the central venous pressure so people measure the pressure in the right atrium and somehow this was used as a standard of care to direct uh, fluid therapy in ICU and it was completely bogus and based on completely bad information but it was a standard of care and many protocols you know insisted that you measure this parameter and direct therapy and you know I wrote a pivotal paper on this basically questioning this and saying this is completely bogus um, and in fact the only study to support this was a study in seven standing horses um, that that was the uh, basis the scientific basis of this widespread um, maneuver done in almost every single icu and so i think you know people thought i was a rattle rouser but you know i follow the science and i follow the truth and wherever it takes you it takes you And, you know, sometimes I'm wrong, you know, sometimes I'm right. But I think it's, you know, science is questioning. You know, you can't just follow blindly. You have to question everything. And I think that's become even more important now with COVID is that, you know, science is based on, you know, challenging the status quo, asking questions, having a debate, looking at the data, looking at opposing data, and then, you know, coming to some kind of consensus. And it's self-correcting. You know that's the nice thing about science is it changes it evolves as our understanding evolves.
1: Yeah, and there's this this is quite an amazing thing. I mean, I'll be honest, I didn't fully grasp the significance of this don't treat until the disease is ser- extremely serious, you know, approach which was taken initially. You also developed um what's called, you know, outpatient treatment, treatment before people come into the hospital. Um and it, it's just so strange that there was no directed effort to figure out what that would be, how to keep people out of the hospital. Because once you're in the hospital, that's a, that lowers your likelihood of a good outcome dramatically, right? Yes. So, you know, there's lots of theories about that. But tell me, what, what do you think? So, you know, we obviously figured out pretty soon that, you know, by
0: the time patients come to a hospital, they're pretty bad off. And you know your risk of landing in the ICU and on ventilator is high. And we, we realized right very soon that the, the key to, to, to controlling this pandemic, the key to ending it, was early treatment, uh, which is such an obvious thing. Is that what you want to do? Is treat people, in the day one, day two, day three of their illness, uh, with repurposed drugs that work. And th- th- I mean, th- this is common sense because it prevents the disease progressing. So they don't get sick. They don't go to hospital. They don't die. They don't use hospital resources. Secondly, they don't spread it to the family members. And thirdly, they don't spread it in the community. So if we had adopted as a number of countries have done early, widespread early treatment, we could have controlled and ended this pandemic in the middle of 2020 and that's that's the only it was the only way out and it currently is the only way out as we know there're lots of repurposed drugs you know people have focused on hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin but if you look at the data there's a group called early C19 there must be 20 repurposed drugs that work very effectively in reducing the the disease the severity of the disease the risk of hospitalization and the risk of death but nobody knows about it because they don't want you to know about it it's part of their agenda and there's no question of doubt if we had adopted a policy of early aggressive treatment this would have been in in our rearview
1: mirror we wouldn't we wouldn't be discussing this today well so of course that's a bold thing to say you know in the in given the kind of let's call it the mainstream consciousness around COVID. So justify it for me, please.
0: Yeah, so um you know the the obvious thing to do is to treat people early because it prevents the spread of the disease, it presents the transmission. And there are multiple drugs we work and there are examples. For example in Uttar Pradesh they have a very progressive administrator. So a Uttar Pradesh is a very big province in India, about 200 million people, so it's really the size of a country. And for reasons that that are truly astonishing, he decided to adopt a treat and spread policy where they basically treated everybody in this province with ivermectin and a number of other drugs. They abolished COVID-19 the mortality is plummeted. And there are many other examples in the world, in, in certain provinces in Mexico, in, in South America, in, in in Asia. So we have, you know, very good epidemiological data that if you aggressively treat early, that you can you can get rid of this disease. What's also astonishing is the US is one of the highest mortality rates from COVID, which which is astonishing, if not the highest. We're the most progressive country, we have more resources than any other country, we have all of this brain power, yet if you look at countries in Africa, their risk of dying was infinitesimally small. And I think there there are many reasons for this. One of them is, which is fascinating, is first, ivermectin is used for prophylaxis of parasitic diseases. So much of the population is exposed to ivermectin, and there's very good epidemiological data, maybe four or five independent studies that have shown that those countries that have mass distribution programs for ivermectin actually have a much lower mortality. Secondly, people live outdoors, uh, mainly not indoors like we do, so they get something called sunshine believe it or not sunshine is such an important curative factor in terms of improving your general health, your immune system, your vitamin D. So um, and obviously they don't have the enormous crowding like we did have in New York City or maybe in Italy so um, I think there are multiple factors that led to this anomaly but you know why didn't we look at you know the epidemiological data to see okay what countries are doing well and what countries are doing poorly we did really badly and i think there are multiple factors
1: that um that you know led to this i can think of a couple i mean if probably these are younger countries also i would guess um and also uh, the rate of obesity is probably a lot lower because those are two highly correlated with bad outcomes, right? Age yeah. and obesity.
0: Yeah, so you're absolutely true. So that astonishingly, over 30% of the American population are classified as obese. And obesity is a major risk factor, if not the most most important risk factor for, for getting severe COVID and dying from COVID. And many of the young people who actually died from COVID were obese. And it seems to be that Fat tissue has a high concentration of ACE2 receptors so, so that may be one of the um, reasons and then the fat tissue acts as a source of these inflammatory proteins. So you're right, I think it's, they are a terribly unhealthy lifestyle. You know Americans not only are they overweight but they are um, sugar and starch addicts so they have uncontrolled blood glucose which again increases your risk. So we have this combination of obese people who are unhealthy, have unhealthy lifestyles, and then whom we lock them down. So instead of letting them go outdoors, get some sunshine, get some exercise, we locked them down indoors where all they would do is eat. So we perpetuated this, this problem of poor diet
1: and starch addiction. There's this other element. You were talking about sunshine, right? And I was uh, reading uh, quite a bit, and I think uh, our mutual friend, uh, Dr. Ryan Cole, actually put me onto this first, uh, maybe a year ago, um, that basically a vitamin D deficiency was also correlated with uh, you know bad outcomes. And this is, it seems like the most obvious thing that you could do as a public health measure, would be to tell people, hey, just make sure your vitamin D is good.
0: Right? Yeah. So there's overwhelming data concerning vitamin D. The federal government and state agencies do not want to admit it, just because it's such an obvious intervention. It's so obvious. And the data actually shows that if your vitamin D level is above 50, that your chances of dying of COVID are close to zero, zero. And so we know who are at highest risk of vitamin D deficiency. It's elderly people, people in long-term care facilities, because they're indoors, they don't get outdoors. Obese people, um, people of of colour. So it, it was such a simple and obvious intervention. Just let them take vitamin D, and also tell them to go outdoors. And you know, if they if they live in a in a part of the country where there's sunshine, get sunshine every day. You know, sunshine has enormous curative properties, both in terms of making vitamin D and also sun has infrared and infrared rays that are enormously curative. So I think the best thing is just go outdoors and walk. You get exercise, you get sunshine, it's good for your mentation and supplement with vitamin D. I think if we did that simple intervention,
1: we could have saved tens of thousands of lives. But, you know, we we still can at this point, you know, do some of these things, right? Because it's at at the moment, you know, while, you know, many people would argue this is absolutely not an emergency anymore, it's still with us.
0: Oh, yes. COVID is here and it probably will be here for a long time. So people need to empower themselves. They need to do what they can do to improve the immune system such that, firstly, they don't get COVID, and secondly, if they do, it's a very minor infection. And so there, there are some very simple things that people can do: vitamin D, you know, being the, the most obvious. There are other things such as vitamin C, um, melatonin, sunshine, um, na- nasal spray. So we know where does the virus replicate? Where? In your nose. So if you want to kill the virus, it's simple: use use a viricidal nose spray. So if you're in a you know exposed to a, in a crowd, where you're in a situation where you're exposed to a lot of people and maybe potentially exposed just spray your nose with a nasal spray. I, I particularly use providone iodine, a 1% solution which kills the virus in seconds. It kills it in seconds and you know this is not made up. There's a very good study a randomized controlled trial where they randomized people with COVID. They had COVID. These were people who were scared of going to hospital. Imagine such a thing, people with COVID being scared. And they randomized them to a nasal spray or placebo, and the nasal spray significantly reduced their time of viral shedding, reduced the hospitalization rate, and reduced death. Reduced death. So this is such a cheap, simple intervention and yet nobody wants to talk about it. Uh, it's an outrage. So you know, we we have many different forms of prophylactic, which is prevention, and early treatment protocols to limit this disease. But they don't want you to know about this. They
1: want you to stay home, get sick, and then go to hospital. It's an outrage. So you, you do have an early treatment protocol that's been honed over the years now to something that's uh, you know. A number of people I, I know have taken it and have, you know, kind of swear by it. Why don't you just briefly tell me about that?
0: Yeah, so we, ha- we have a, a, you know, a prevention protocol and then we have an early treatment protocol. Our uh, early treatment protocol, we use ivermectin, which is not a horse dewormer. So that, that was a propaganda campaign which was orchestrated by the FDA and is a complete and utter lie. It's. They claim it's a toxic horse dewormer. So let's be clear, 3.7 billion doses of ivermectin have been given to human beings. And after penicillin, it has had the greatest influence on the health of humanity on this planet by by almost eradicating a whole number of parasitic diseases. It is completely safe. I don't know how to stress it enough. It is completely safe. So you're more likely to die from Tylenol you're more likely to die from Tylenol than you are from ivermectin so you know we could argue about its efficacy we believe it's an effective drug but you know if um, you have very few options what is there to lose if you have a sick patient you have a drug that's completely safe a drug that is cheap what in, what in the heck have you got to lose by trying this drug? And we know from really good studies, so there are studies that are designed to fail, but recently there's a very big study out of Brazil, over 100,000 patients for prophylaxis, showing that there was a 93% reduction in the risk of getting COVID. So, you know, people say, well, I'm cherry picking. Well, you know what, I think it's a good study You know, what we do is we speak to patients, believe it or not, you know. And patients tell us over and over and over again how that their disease changed course completely once they started ivermectin. So, our early treatment protocol involves ivermectin. We sometimes use hydroxychloroquine. Uh, We use another number of nutraceuticals. um, And it seems very effective. So the biggest problem, though, is we're using these drugs off-label. And I think there's a big misunderstanding of what off-label actually means. When a drug company you know, develops a drug, they then apply to the FDA for licensing, but it's for a specific indication. So, for example, if you have psoriasis, the drug will be approved for psoriasis. However, many drugs have applications beyond what it's originally licensed for, and that's called off-label and um, about 20 percent of drugs used in the hospital are used off-label every single day it's common practice and in fact the fda promotes the fda themselves if you go to their website promotes the use of off-label drugs and what they say is that doctors are fully entitled to use fda approved off-label drugs at their own discretion the discretion of the physician but suddenly with covid The rules changed you couldn't use an off-label drug and you have to ask why and obviously they don't want people to use off-label drugs they want you to use their firstly their expensive drugs and it obviously would compete with the the mandate for the vaccine because if there were cheap effective drugs that could treat COVID why would you want to be vaccinated with a with an experimental vaccine whose safety has never been established. So it was a a valid alternative for people who wanted a choice. You know, it's called personal freedom and choice and consent. And so people could have chosen, you know, I don't want the vaccine. I'd rather be treated with this protocol. But, you
1: know, this was denied. You've made me aware recently of a number of papers that were published, one I believe in 2004, another one 2014, of use of repurposed drugs for related diseases, SARS and MERS, and studies funded actually by the NIH itself, amazingly enough. That was shocking to me. In
0: 2004, there was a study from Belgium looking at the use of chloroquine for SARS-1 showed it in a culture medium to be highly effective in killing the virus and uh, limiting transmission. In 2005 there was a paper by our CDC, the Center for Disease Control in in Atlanta, America, which showed exactly the same thing, that that chloroquine was very effective for the control of uh, SARS-1. And then astonishingly in 2014 when we we were having the MERS outbreak, there was a paper published by the NIAD, which is the NIH controlled by Fauci, which was entitled the use of repurposed drugs for the treatment of MERS. And they uh, listed 26, I think, repurposed drugs. Number two was chloroquine. So, so, you know, the, the scientific community and the NIH were perfectly aware that there were repurposed drugs and repurposed drugs could be used for SARS and MERS and SARS too, but somehow when COVID two came around, mm-hmm. that didn't apply anymore. Because you know you must ask why, and clearly there were uh, severe conflicts of interest. It was inconvenient. It was inconvenient for them, for them to be a repurposed drug.
1: Well, I mean, but not only does it tell me that you know these agencies would have been aware. But it also tells me that the doctors who tried these drugs had a really good basis to do it on wouldn't you say
0: absolutely i mean there was good biological premise of why these drugs worked that's why they did the studies which actually showed there was a whole host of drugs that worked and and if you kind of think about a, a pandemic what you want to control it is or repurpose drugs because by their very nature, these are cheap, inexpensive, easy to manufacture. And since you know, this is a global issue, it then is very easy to distribute these drugs around the entire world and control the pandemic. Which was the obvious answer, is the use of cheap, repurposed, effective, safe drugs. And you know what? I mean, hydroxychloroquine is safe. If you use it in the right dose, which is really important, and uh, the mectin is exceedingly safe you could use 10 times the recommended dose and, and it's safe and vitamin D vitamin C Nigella sativa there's there's a whole host of, of medications melatonin that are highly effective in um, as a repurposed drug for controlling this disease but it was it went against
1: the narrative so, you know, I've been recently looking at this uh, new Lancet Commission report looking at the response to COVID-19 and, you know, it points out some huge, huge flaws. But what, one thing that's kind of starkly missing is this issue of repurposed drugs in there. What are your thoughts? We now know
0: that the WHO, the NIH, the CDC, the FDA, all these agencies are captured by Big Pharma. Big Pharma controls the agenda. And it's obviously not in big pharma's interests for cheap, effective repurposed drugs to have a role in in this disease. Uh, It's just, they're not gonna make money. Unfortunately, you know, you have to follow the money. But I think COVID has shone a bright light onto the mischievous behavior of big pharma. And so let's be clear, Big Pharma, they are not in business to save lives or improve the quality of people's lives. They're in business for one thing, to make money, even if they sell a drug which they know is harmful. You just have to look at all the multiple, multiple lawsuits that have been filed against them.
1: Now that we're talking about this issue of Big Pharma, we're going to have to talk about the issue of these genetic vaccines and the response to them and the harms associated with them um in fact you know we're here at this conference to uh, you know to discuss uh, treatment of you know spike related disease i think is, the, is how it's called so i guess before i go there right um, this is something i've just been made aware of as well i've been reading uh, uh, dr joe latipo's book he said that the way in medical school they are taught including him are taught about vaccines is just very, very different than the way they're taught about almost everything else, other types of drugs, frankly, treatments, everything. And it's almost, he describes it as almost like an indoctrination, which he himself was in, he says at one point. What are your thoughts?
0: Yeah, so he's a very smart man, I have the utmost respect. And he's absolutely right. I mean, I was taught that vaccines and vaccination was the most important development the most important medical intervention ever that it changed the the natural history of almost every infectious disease and we taught this blindly we never given data to prove it which just assumed that vaccines are highly effective and very safe and have changed the natural history of all of almost all the infectious diseases but when you actually look at the truth you know, it's it's very far from the truth. So if you look at most diseases, measles, mumps, rubella, um, chicken pox, um, almost all of these diseases had declined significantly before the introduction of vaccination. And this is because of simple things as, you know, clean water, sanitation, better hygiene. So those interventions had a much greater effect on um, infectious diseases than vaccination now sure you know I think the smallpox vaccine did make a difference so I think there are some vaccines which were very important but you know our kids are exposed to I don't know 30 different vaccines Um, we know most many of them are not effective many of them are not safe and what's remarkable and what is truly remarkable is none of these vaccines have ever been tested in a randomized placebo-controlled trial. So their safety has never been evaluated, never. And what they have in the vaccine is aluminium compounds. So the reason they add aluminium is many of these dead vaccines, if you inject them, they don't
1: mountain immune response. And you're talking about just traditional vaccines. Traditional let me, let me, vaccines. Before we continue, you're telling me no vaccine has ever been tested this way. No, like, well, yes. In the gold standard. The gold standard is randomized control. So there actually is,
0: so there is two studies. The one is the Gardasil vaccine, but they lied. What they said is patients were randomized to the active vaccine and the adjuvant, which was aluminum, Or placebo which had saline. So that's what people thought. But what actually they did is the placebo group got the aluminium adjuvant. They didn't get two placebo. Mm. And it's the adjuvant which causes all of these autoimmune and inflammatory diseases. Mm. So when you then look at the side effect profile of the active Gardasil versus the placebo, the side effects are exactly the same. Why? Because they both got aluminium. And uh, Merck used a novel kind of aluminium compound that had never been used before. And there's very good data that it actually is the aluminium in the vaccine, which, which is p- profoundly toxic. So there is one completely randomised controlled trial in which they gave participants the active vaccine, the adjuvant versus saline. One trial. This was done in a hundred sheep. Okay,
1: this is sheep. And which vaccine is that? This so
0: this was a special, this was a vaccine for sheep. It had to do with blue tongue disease. So they wanted to actually see um, the effects. So basically it was to test the aluminum um, in the vaccine. And what they found was the aluminum was toxic. These sheep became very sick sheep. Their behavior changed. They became unsociable. Many of them died compared to the sheep that got placebo, real placebo. So as far as I know, that's the only true randomized controlled trial ever done with a vaccine in sheep. It's an astonishing thing. So people think these vaccines are safe and effective and have been tested. That is not true. And the, the presumption that the aluminium in these uh, as the adjuvant in many of the vaccines is safe is just unfounded. It's never been tested. And it's, it's got to the point where the FDA and the CDC just assume it's safe, but it's never been tested. And now we're talking about the previous vaccines. We're not even talking about these new experimental jabs, let's call them. The problem with them is they, they w- were not adequately tested for side effects, for the you know, ability to cause cancer, they affect in pregnant people. They affect in children. They affect in people with multiple medical diseases. They just bypassed every single safety measure. There were no good animal studies. We we don't even know what's in the vaccine. This is the most astonishing thing. We're not sure what's in the vial because it's a secret. It's a secret. So I mean, it's astonishing. You know, as a physician, when I prescribe ampicillin. I know exactly the molecular structure I know how it works I know it's kinetics I know it's pharmacodynamics I know its side effects I know everything about it but with these vaccines it's a secret they don't want to tell us we're not even sure what's in the vaccine there was a group in Germany that actually looked at they did electron microscopy and they found all kinds of heavy metals which shouldn't be there in in the vaccine so we have no idea what people are being injected with never mind their their safety and we absolutely know now categorically definitively that they're not safe and they're ineffective
1: well so there was this recent you know bombshell admission in a you know eu testimony where a pfizer um, official basically said no to the question of whether these genetic, their genetic vaccine had ever been tested for transmission. I mean, what's your reaction to this? I mean, they've lied
0: about everything in terms of the vaccine. We were told that when you get the shot in the arm, it stays in the arm. We now know that that's completely false. It distributes throughout the whole body. Uh, a recent study actually showed mRNA present in breast milk. So we know. It goes throughout the whole body, so, so that, that was a lie. We were told that it prevents transmission of the disease, which we know is not true. We were told it reduces the risk of hospitalization, which we now know is not true, and... Wait, wait a sec,
1: this is the one thing I thought was true. The no. risk of hospitalization reduction, no? So if you actually look at the data now, almost all, so
0: that they're, they're, it's part of the lie, So if you look at the national health system, you look at the data in Scotland, the double vaccinated, the triple vaccinated, and quadruple vaccinated, they had a higher risk of being hospitalized than the unvaccinated. So, I mean, this is truly astonishing that that it actually, because of the effect on the immune system, and this is data from Israel, this is data from European countries, this is data from the UK, the more you get vaccinated, the greater your risk of getting COVID and being hospitalized for COVID. And I'm not making this up.
1: So I was aware of this negative efficacy in terms of contracting the disease, getting the disease, but severe outcomes was supposed to be the last thing that these vaccines actually did in the way they were supposed to be effective.
0: Yes. Yeah, so we, we don't know. The, the bottom line is that, you know, maybe with the original Wuhan variant in those with severe comorbidities, maybe it did have a benefit which we don't know. But now this vaccine is completely ineffective. So, I mean, it's the ancestral strain. They're using a virus which is gone. It doesn't exist. They're vaccinating you against a virus, which doesn't exist. And the, the idea that it reduced mortality is highly questionable.
1: But now there is this new bivalent vaccine, which is supposed to work on the Omicron variant.
0: Yeah, so, yeah, fortunately it was widely tested, my understanding, in eight mice. And in fact, all the eight mice got Omicron. So it caused an antibody response, but it didn't protect these eight mice from getting Omicron. So that's that's the extent of the um, scientific evaluation of these vaccines.
1: How is this even possible that, you know, uh, this, new vaccine platform that hasn't been tested thoroughly that we don't know the contents of apparently is approved based on injections of eight mice?
0: Yeah, I think if anything tells you that these agencies are captured, this tells you that basically the agencies do what big pharma wants them to do. I can give you another example. So there's a drug called remdesivir. Uh, Remdesivir, it doesn't work. We know it doesn't work. We know it's highly toxic. The WHO recommend against its use. So they just bend the rules to th- follow their masters, which is Big Pharma. And, and this is why we have to change the structure of these regulatory agencies because the, they're meant to regulate the industry that's controlling them. And we, we need to, this needs to change. There needs to be complete financial and No
1: conflicts of interest. So Dr. Ashish Jha, uh, the White House COVID-19 response coordinator, has said, um, there have not been any serious side effects of the vaccines. That's a direct quote. What's your reaction?
0: Yeah, which is astonishing. I mean, that somebody of that stature could actually provide such misinformation is astonishing. So I'm considered a misinformationist because I'm trying to tell the truth. And that's obviously a lie so how do I know it's a lie well actually from Pfizer's own data so under the Freedom of Information Act and the release of of, you know the data that was hidden for 75 years with the first release we know that in the first 90 days there were 1,124 deaths directly related to the vaccine and over 42,000 Forty two thousand adverse events, many of which were serious adverse events. And so they list the conditions associated with the the adverse events. It's eight pages long. So to claim that there are no adverse events is a lie. I mean we knew three months into the rollout of the vaccine that they were neither safe nor effective, with very serious adverse events. And at that time there was enough information to shut down the program which is what they've done previously with vaccines, which proved to be harmful. But yet this data was hidden. And so there can be no question of doubt. This, this data now is in the public domain for anyone to see. And, you know, the data is there categorically. The, the number of deaths and serious adverse events related to the Pfizer
1: vaccine. So what are the most common harms that you've been seeing?
0: Yep. Yeah. So that's actually a very interesting question because the, the adverse events from the vaccine differ somewhat from long COVID. So there is a commonality in that it's mainly due to the persistence of the spike protein. And the spike protein is probably one of the most toxic proteins the human body has ever seen. It seems though, and we have really good data from a number of groups so firstly from Pfizer's own data and then there have been two independent surveys looking at vaccine injured both in the US and in Germany and um, over 80% of the adverse events are neurological so w- which is what makes us such a devastating disease uh, so these people are neurologically impaired um, the commonest is overwhelming severe fatigue and tiredness then brain fog so it if uh, it interferes with the ability to think clearly to do cognitive tasks to function normally as a human being so it's these overwhelming fatigue overwhelming tiredness brain fog and then they get a what's, what's called a peripheral neuropathy in which they develop antibodies against the nerve fibers so they get terrible shooting pains paresthesias numbness in their legs Um, terrible pain burning pains and which can be enormously disabling and that seems to be pretty common and then obviously we have the myocarditis Um, they can't hide that so you know we, we know this particularly affects young men who seem for whatever reason to be particularly vulnerable to developing myocarditis and then there are a whole host of other diseases uh, patients get severe ringing in the ears called tinnitus they get visual problems um, they get problems with with walking and ambulation um, so it's, it's it's a spectrum in fact there are over 2,000 published peer-reviewed papers describing different medical conditions associated with the vaccine but unfortunately the, the most serious are the neurological which you know, interfere with people's ability to work, to function normally, um, uh, to ambulate. So these are really serious complications.
1: So from what I've heard, some of these symptoms of long COVID as it's called are also brain fog and fatigue and so forth. So there's an overlap. And then of course, there's this potential interactive effect where people that are vaccinated are now more likely to become you know to, to get COVID. So it could be a double whammy. Is, I don't know if this is uh, something you've observed or is there is a way to measure it? or
0: Absolutely. you're absolutely correct. So it's basically related to the load of spike protein you have. The more spike protein you have, your greater your risk of complications, organ failure and death. So how do you get more, more spike? The more you vaccinated, the more spike. But of, obviously if you get COVID, and you're already vaccinated you get spike some more so basically the bottom line is don't get vaccinated and um, avoid getting COVID if you're vaccinated and if you are vaccinated to be i mean sorry if you do get COVID, to be treated early because one of the again the reasons for early treatment is that if you treat early you limit the load of spike protein Mm. so it's the spike protein the load of spike protein that determines the complications. So you're right, there was this misinformation that if you had long COVID, you should be vaccinated. But that's the worst thing to do because it further increases your load of spike protein. So if you have long COVID, you
1: absolutely want to avoid being vaccinated. Okay, this is fascinating. Explain to me the body of evidence that exists that shows it's the load of spike protein that's responsible for all of this disease.
0: Okay, so you know, what does spike bro- protein do to the body? So it does a number of horrendous things. The one, the one thing is it's profoundly pro-inflammatory. So it's taken up by what's called phagocytic cells, and these are cells in the brain, cells in the heart, uh, cells throughout the body, and it causes profound inflammation. It's taken up by the cells lining the blood vessels. So, you know, Dr. Cole, who's a really outstanding pathologist who's going to be at our conference, has obviously done pathology specimens. And what he finds is if you look at the endothelial cells, and these are the cells lining the blood vessel, they're absolutely packed with spike protein. Packed. The cells are packed with spike protein. So this idea that the spike stays in the arm is false. The spike circulates, and it goes to the professional, what they call professional phagocytic cells. So, you know, the microglia cells in the brain and it causes inflammation. Uh, It goes to the endothelial cells and it does some really bad things to the endothelium. So the endothelium lines blood vessels. So what does it do? It causes the blood vessels to constrict and it causes clotting. So it interferes with blood flow. And when it interferes with blood flow, you have what's called infarction. It kills the the tissue which the blood vessels supply. So, we know that people who have been exposed to spike have micro infarcts in their brain if we do high sensitive MRI. So, you know, that's one of the mechanisms. The other is that, um, believe it or not, they manufactured spike to have both two foreign proteins. One is an amyloid protein and the, the other is a prion protein. So prions are you know mad cow disease. They added, when they designed this vaccine, they added a prion to the receptor binding domain of the spike protein, and they did that because it then binds more avidly to the ACE2 receptor. Mm. So people who get the vaccine are at much higher risk of getting prion disease, which is mad cow disease. And indeed, there have been many cases of mad cow disease being described. As I said, it has amyloid protein. So, what we know about these clots that form is that these are very mysterious clots because they're very fibrinous, they're very resistant to breakdown, and they have amyloid. And this is likely from the amyloid within the spike protein. So, so that's one of the one mechanisms. The other which is very common in the vaccine, injured is, is what's called autoimmunity. So um, some of the domains in the spike protein look very much like the host's antigens. So it's called molecular mimicry. So what happens is when the host mounts an immune response about against the spike, at the same time it causes antibodies directed against the host's own tissues. So the host is attacking itself. So you can see that this is a complete onslaught. You have the, the spike causing inflammation, the spike causing clotting, the spike causing amyloid and prion disease, and you have the spike causing all of this autoimmune disease. So it's, it's a total onslaught from, from every angle. And that's just the beginning of what spike does. And it seems the more spike you have, the more inflammation you have. So I think that the data is, you know, the pathologist never lies because they they can see the tissue. And, you know, I've seen the slides that that Dr. Cole shows, and it's astonishing to see the spike protein. It's just packing the endothelial cells, which means it affects the blood vessels. We also know, and this is frightening data from Dr. Patterson, who's looked at circulating white cells, He's found 18 months after long COVID or vaccination, circulating white cells still have spike protein within the cell, 18 months. So um, the effects are devastating uh, and long-term and we don't know. It goes to the ovary and it probably kills off ova. You know, women are born with a finite number of ova. It's not like sperm which divide you know you're born with your your set of ova and that's it and we know i mean this is well researched data the fertility rates in 220 in 2022 in in multiple european countries have plummeted significantly a 20 to 30% decrease in sudden decrease in fertility rates live births presumably because of the effect of spike on the ovary um, so The spike goes everywhere. It goes to every organ in the body. um, And it does devastating things.
1: So how many vaccine injured people and how many long COVID patients has your group treated at this point?
0: Yeah, so I I personally don't treat it. And and the the FLCC Ready is uh, an informational educational organization. Our our goal is to um, inform patients and inform doctors and educate doctors. So we don't directly treat patients, but we have colleagues associated with our group who do treat patients, You know, Dr. Corey being one of them. But if you actually look at conservative statistics, and this is what's war-wise frightening, is firstly the federal government doesn't recognize the vaccine injured as an entity. So, you know, these poor people who are vaccine injured, there's no question, have limited resources. And most doctors will say, you know, I don't know what's wrong with you. It's puzzling to me, but I can tell you it's not the vaccine. That's what they're all told. So they denied health care, they denied compensation, and they denied treatment. So, you know, the numbers are difficult to know. If you use the, um, so if you look at the VARS data, we're looking at over a million. If we, we look at Pfizer's data, we're looking at over two to three million. If we use there's a, there was a, a, a survey called Pollfish, which independently looked at vaccine people to see the incidence, was six point eight percent. So if you extrapolate that to the number of people vaccinated in this country, in this country alone, we're talking about ten to fifteen million million vaccine injured people. So this is a humanitarian catastrophe Um, you know whether it's 1 million or 10 million i think we're facing a massive medical catastrophe because there are these massive numbers of vaccine injured people who have who are ignored and shunned by the medical community most of the time they're told it's all in your head there's nothing wrong with you even though we we have objective evidence that they, they they are injured so this, the, the consequences of vaccine injury, I think, are going to far exceed those of, of long COVID. So obviously long COVID is a big problem, but I think the, 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 the severe severity. So long COVID generally gets better and is self-limiting. As I said, most of the vaccine injured are severely neurologically compromised, and many of them are wheelchair-bound. And, you know, that's why we're putting on our conference. You know, our conference is basically designed to, to teach physicians how to manage spike-related diseases. And, you know, we go across the board. Well, you know, obviously there are no randomized controlled trials, so much like our math protocol, you know, we've taken basic science, clinical observation, patient responses, and put together what we think are rational approach to the treatment of the vaccine injured. Obviously this will evolve with time as we get better data, but you can't ignore these people. I mean, how can you do nothing? How can you say, well, you know what, we, I don't know what this is, we can't treat you. I mean, that's, that's inhuman and that's just um, cruel. We have to treat these people. These people took the vaccine without true informed consent, believing that they were actually doing a service to society and these people have now been injured and society owes them you know owes them some kind of um, compensation and owes them treatment
1: yeah i mean at the very least acknowledgement that what's happening to them is real
0: yes i mean absolutely i mean the comment of Joshi shaw that the no vaccine injuries i mean is is a complete i mean it's laughable and it's disgraceful i mean i think you know we have to face the truth these people are not faking it they're not making this up uh, these people are severely injured I mean and that we have objective measures to to test them I and mean, we can just look at all the auto antibodies that they develop normal people don't develop all these weird antibodies so there's something very sinister and bad happening and then of course they've got all the spike protein in their body
1: well and as we briefly discussed earlier, this kind of brings us full circle to early treatment protocols, because as it would happen, there's a lot of commonality. So this early treatment protocols that you just designed back in March of 2020 and have been honing since, inform a lot of the treatment today.
0: So yes, part of the problem is with with early treatment is inflammation and the virus. As I said, with the vaccine injured, inflammation and autoantibodies is a big deal. Uh, Fortunately, you know, ivermectin is a remarkable drug. You know, people poo-poo it, talk about it as horse dewormer, I mean, which is completely absurd. So if you had to design a drug for COVID, it would look exactly like ivermectin. It has all the properties that any drug would want. It's antiviral, so it works against a whole host of RNA viruses. This is indisputable. It um, is anti-inflammatory. We know this. There are multiple studies showing that ivermectin is a very powerful anti-inflammatory drug. We know that what it does is it stimulates a process called autophagy which is very important in the process of healing and it's one of the main mechanisms that we use to help patients get rid of spike protein and ivermectin believe it or not, stimulates autophagy. The other thing it does which is important is it changes, improves the microbiome. So we have all of these bacteria in our gut. And what happens is COVID and the vaccine changes your microbiome in a very unfavorable manner, very unfavorable. It causes profound changes in the microbiome. And this in itself has serious consequences. Ivermectin helps restore the, the microbiome. So it, it truly is, 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 is a multifunctional drug which is safe and it, it works both for early COVID and it also is very effective for the vaccine injured. So it, it really, and it's not, you know, we're not making money selling ivermectin. No one's going to make money. People ask, well you know, you got a conflict of interest, are you selling ivermectin? No. You know, this is a a cheap generic drug. The WHO actually had access to ivermectin at two cents a tablet, two cents. I mean, how, how can you possibly make money
1: off such a cheap drug? As we're talking here, you paint a picture, a very disturbing picture of the medical establishment. You know, I could ask a number of questions. One is, why is there so few doctors thinking along the lines, at least, of what you are?
0: Yeah. So, it's a very puzzling question to me, you know, why? I mean, because I, I, I have no reason but to tell the truth. I mean, what, what, what do I gain by promoting misinformation? So, you know, in my entire career, I've sought the truth, and that's what we do. We tell the truth as best we understand the truth. And it is astonishing to me why there's so few physicians who actually prepare to open their eyes and see what's going on and I, I do think about this often because you know why is it just a handful of doctors and it's perplexing to me I think maybe that we, we, we in an era of medicine where doctors just follow th- this is part of the training at medical school is that th- they become lemmings they just followers they've lost the. Process of independent thought, and I see this in our residents. They can't think. the The material between their two ears is not utilized. They just They just regurgitate what they're told. They follow protocols. They don't think. So I think that could be part of it. I think also there may be an element of fear that maybe they suspect that something is wrong, something isn't right. But they're fearful of their career because we know. That the agencies and medical boards have gone after people that have spoken against the the narrative, and physicians have lost their their license. And obviously, that's you know, for a physician to lose a license, basically it ends their career. So it may be an element of of fear. And then the third could be just ignorance: is that they just don't understand, don't want to know. And I think they're also misled by the medical journals. So. I used to be in that category. I used to think that what you read in the medical journals was the truth and that the highly revered medical journals spoke the truth. We know now that that's completely false, that you really can't believe what's in the medical journals. And so this is a terrible statement I'm making because, you know, if you can't trust the medical journals, who can you trust? And so I think you have to be, physicians have to have an open mind and have to begin to think critically. And you know, what they often do is just will read the concluding paragraph of the abstract of a paper. And that's what they base their assessment of. And the conclusions are always contrived and don't really reflect the paper. So I think you have to be very suspicious of what's published, particularly when there's a conflict of interest. So. You know, if, if we know pharmaceutical companies manipulate data, they hide data, they have ghost writers who write these papers. They that that you really can't trust the medical journals, um, and so you know, Marcia Engel, who I think is a hero, she was the editor of New England Journal for many many years. She wrote a book in two thousand and four, basically saying that you can't trust the journals, you can't trust the medical. Uh, uh, Committees and organizations, just because they're captured by big pharma, which is a terrible indictment of the system. Um, so, you know, I think it's a it's a combination of factors why so many doctors are so silent. But I think, you know, they need to face you know they they need to face the truth. They need to speak the truth, and they they need to stop hiding behind this facade of misinformation
1: what uh sorts of consequences have you faced for you know very early stepping out probably not even realizing what you were getting into
0: yeah so i mean what you say is absolutely true when we started this in march 2020 i have to admit i was completely naive i had no idea what was going on and where this was going but you know obviously with time you know it became obvious you know that there were other agendas and that there were some evil forces. And for me, I was silenced. You know, I eventually, you know, I had to quit my job. The American Board of Medicine is going after me. The uh, Virginia State Board is going after me. Um, The medical journals are going after me. So if you you try to speak the truth, they'll go after you. So I'm considered a misinformationist. And my only goal is to speak the scientific truth.
1: I guess I have to ask about, you know, how you imagine this state of affairs is reformed or because there has to be a way out. So I think there are a few avenues. I think that
0: we need to spread the truth so that more people, the people of the world, our fellow human beings need to know what's going on. We need doctors to be educated as to what's going on. And I think what's going to emerge is an alternative healthcare system because this one has completely failed. It's failed in so many ways. So I think there are going to be alternative ways of providing healthcare. And then I think the most important is the way the agencies are run has to be completely reformed. And I think the uh, you know Congress has to change this. That the profound conflicts of interest, the rotating doors between pharma and the agencies has to stop and that these agencies should do what they meant to do is regulate not being controlled by the agencies they're meant to regulate is that if there are any perceived conflicts of interest it should disqualify you from working for any of these agencies so I think you know it has to be multi-pronged I think we need to educate humanity we need to educate doctors um we, we certainly need an alternative health care system which is more designed in promoting health and welfare and well-being rather than being driven by pharma what's astonishing is the u.s makes up five percent of the world's population yet we consume 50 percent of the world's prescription medication 50 percent we consume 80 percent of the opiates so We have an obsession in this country with the use of prescription drugs which do not cure disease. Let's be clear. What they do is they keep people chronically addicted to medication. So rather than focus on lifestyle changes and healthy eating and healthy living, um, which, which can make a major impact on disease, we're so obsessed with using medications which do not work, And may have side effects and people are addicted for their life. So I think we need to change the way medicine functions
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, you mentioned uh, sunshine early on right and it's not just about vitamin D There's this mitochondrial activation that happens with the infrared Sun. I've just recently learned about that Um, That's amazing. My mother was right about the sunshine (laughs) Um, No, this is this is you've raised some very very profound issues here we have to get back to basics you know eating you know
0: eating whole real food not processed food getting exercise walking outside walking in the Sun being kind compassionate human beings we need to you know we need to restore humanity and we need to get back to the basics Um, and that seems to, to have been lost and there's simple lifestyle changes you can make. You know, just hug somebody. You know, just show affection. You know, with, you know social distancing is, is, is an oxymoron. How can you be social if you're distant? You know, we need to show love and caring and affection and um, care for our fellow
1: human being. Finally, um, if there are people who believe their vaccine injured or know somebody who has where should they reach out who should they reach out
0: to yes yeah, so what i would say is that you know on our website flccc.net, we have a a whole protocol for the treatment of the vaccine injured and i think that's a starting resource they need to find a clinician who who will be receptive to treating them i think that's most important is that most of these patients get shunned they they get dismissed they they're told okay this is not due to a vaccine injured. So we need to educate physicians and that's what our biggest goal of this conference is to try and educate physicians as to the breadth and the depth of the vaccine injured and how to treat them. And so, you know, like most things in medicine, the longer you wait, the more difficult it is to treat. And many patients, it's truly astonishing, do not make the connection between the vaccine and their change in health status. I mean, I had a colleague I was speaking to whose wife was vaccinated and he's telling me, you know what, her, her, her thinking process and her thought process is just not the way it used to be. I think she's becoming demented. And I said, well, do you think it followed the vaccine? And he says, you know, think about it, yes, you're right. So I think many people have health problems, cardiac problems, mental problems, that they really don't associate with the vaccine. So I think people need to look at the temporal trend between the change in the health status and getting the vaccine, and they they are more than likely not vaccine injured.
1: And is there a way for someone who doesn't have access to a doctor who might understand these details to, to be connected with one?
0: On our website, we do, so we don't treat patients directly, but we have links to, there are many physicians across the country who will will manage long COVID and the vaccine injured. So what I would recommend is to go to the website and look look you know look at the links for, for physicians in their area to, to try and find a, um, a physician who's prepared to manage the, the vaccine injured. That's probably my best advice. You know there are there are a number of groups. I think React 19 is probably the most active in this country. React nineteen it's a nonprofit to help the vaccine injured. That's what they do. React 19 can help you link with, with a provider.
1: Well, Dr. Merrick, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show.
0: Thank you kindly, and thank you for understanding um, the issues involved, and it means a lot to us that you know, we could even have this discussion, because you know what, I don't know everything, and I may be not
1: right on everything, but at least we can have an open discussion, and I think that's what's important. Thank you all for joining Dr. Paul Merrick and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelleck.